Okay, so I'm hanging with my buddy Frazzle, right? Northern Michigan. Kind of a honky-tonk biker bar. When in Rome, man, we're trying to shoot some pool, drink a couple cold ones, and who knows, maybe even get to talk to some of the ladies. <laughs> the place has a super nice vibe. Everyone seems to know everyone else, and folks are having a great time. I'm steady, setting up the eight ball to take the rest of Frazzle's money, and this guy comes up to me, and he says, hey, hey, man, hey, man, I want to shake your hand, man. I just want you to know that we got no problem, man. No problem at all, man, with your kind hanging out in our bar, man. My kind. No problem. I didn't even have to turn around. I knew that behind me, some of those nice guys were getting ready to deliver a beatdown. I took a deep breath. Gripped my pool stick hard. Slipped the cue ball into my pocket and got ready. But Frazzle, Frazzle was ahead of me. All right, fellas, next round's on me. Who wants a drink to the health of this guy we've got no problem with? And that's all it took. Pretty soon, everyone started talking about ice fishing on Lake Michigan. At least, they were talking about ice fishing. I watched them for a moment. I was sweating. Looked at the pool table. and went to take a shot. But I wondered where the cue ball had gotten to. Today on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present The Outsiders. Amazing stories from people who can't quite fit in. My name is Glenn Washington. Get ready, because this is Snap Judgment. We're going to kick off today's episode with a bang. Snap favorite Leah Tao returns to the program with the ultimate story of living outside the system. Damsala is a mountain town in the foothills of the Indian Himalayas, but it's not very Indian at all. The Dalai Lama lives there, and almost everyone in the town is from Tibet. I'd been hired to come out there and do some work by a guy called Lakpa. I came from Tibet in 1993. Tell me where we're sitting today, having our conversation. We are sitting below my office, and we can see the mountains, big view, good for refreshing the mind. Every day, I sat next to Lakpa in our crammed little office, and I began to notice that he winced every time he shifted his legs. So one day I asked about it, and our intern turned to me and said, Oh, don't you know? Lakpa set himself on fire four years ago. We call him Self-Immolation Man. You should see his scrapbook. He's famous. The Tibetan activist has set himself on fire. He did this this morning outside the Mumbai Hotel, which was hosting Chinese President. That's CNN India reporting on Lakpa's attempt to burn himself in front of the Taj Hotel in Mumbai. You hear about this kind of thing pretty often on the news, where some Tibetan has set himself on fire to protest China's occupation of Tibet. Usually, it's Buddhist monks who make this ultimate personal sacrifice. But Lakpa was no monk. He was kind of like a dude. I mean, a Tibetan dude, but still a dude. He was 29, he liked to wear Ray-Ban sunglasses, he had a cute girlfriend, he rode a motorcycle, and he would put on these comedy shows in town where he was always a huge hit. He killed at every show. It didn't make any sense to me that this popular comedian dude had tried to burn himself alive.
He was born in a small Tibetan farming village near the Indian border where his family kept yaks. His father died when he was three, and his stepfather was like a character out of Cinderella. He would send Lakpa to wash the dirty laundry in the icy river at four in the morning. In our village, it's inside the Himalayas, so very cold. During winter time, if you touch the rocks, your hand will stick on it because they are like frozen. But my stepfather used to send me to wash dirty things in the very early morning. And my hands are stuck on the stones and all these things. Lakpa and his stepfather spent months at a time in the mountains watching their yaks, just the two of them. In the mountains, no one is there. So when we are climbing on the mountain, he is faster than me. So he will go very fast on the top. Then he's saying, you are not coming. He will throw stone from the top to me. I become unconscious several times. Lakpa would wake up alone on the mountainside after his stepfather had hurled rocks at him and knocked him unconscious. And his mother would get it too. She lived down in the village, but every few weeks she would come to the mountains to bring them supplies, and one night she tried to stand up for Lakpa. That night he beat her a lot. In the middle of the tent, we burned fire with the wood. So he beat her with that sticks with the fire. Her old face and everything was burned. Do you think he was beating her because of you? Yeah, because of me. So that's why I decided to run. Lakpa decided to run away from home. He'd already tried this twice, but he'd been caught by other shepherds and sent back home. So then he thought, what if I cross the border into India? Then no one can come after me. He set out the very next day, early in the morning before anyone else was up. He was nine years old. I took little butter and little sugar. I wrote on the sack with the coal, don't worry mother, I'm going to India. For one day and one night, Lakpa made his way through the mountains, and the following morning, under a thick cloud cover, he arrived at the border. When I reached the border, it's very luckily that skies were become foggy. No one can see me crossing the border. I can hear the Indian armies, but no one has seen me. And just like that, Lakpa slips across and boom, he's in India, alone. He has no money, no food, no passport. He doesn't speak the language, and he has no idea where to go. When I reached inside, I heard a bell, like those used to put on the animal's neck. And I went towards that bell sound. Suddenly, I met a man on a rocky mountain. Then he asked me, where are you going? As luck would have it, the man is a Tibetan who has escaped to India many years before. He introduces Lakpa to another man, who eventually sends him to meet a delegation from the Dalai Lama's Tibetan government in exile. The delegation takes him to Dhamsala, which will become his permanent home. And this is where it fully hits him that he will probably never see his family again. I feel very sad and I couldn't sleep for more than two weeks. Every night I remembered my mother and my family and all the village and all these things. I realized that now I am alone. Lakpa enrolls at a boarding school called the Tibetan Children's Village, which has 2,000 students, all children of Tibetan refugees. All over India, there are Tibetans who've escaped from the Chinese occupation of Tibet, just like the Dalai Lama did a long time ago. But Lakpa doesn't know that. He has no political awareness of any kind. He doesn't even know that Tibet is occupied by China. He just left because he wanted to run away from his stepfather. And when he arrives at the Tibetan children's village, he realizes for the first time that he's not the only Tibetan child in India. When I first reached the Tibetan children's village, they said like, where are you from? I proudly said, I'm from Tibet. They're also saying, we are from Tibet. I was shocked, how you come from Tibet? I told them like, you are telling I, because I know that only I crossed that border, no one else. But Lakpa quickly takes to the school. He makes house captain and school captain, and he begins to learn all the things about Tibet that he never knew when he lived there. 
the reasons most Tibetans flee to India. The Chinese invasion of Tibet in 1949, the Tibetan uprising in 1989, which led to a crackdown by the Chinese where many Tibetans were killed. The Chinese official in charge of Tibet during that crackdown was Hu Jintao, who would of course later go on to become the president of China. He is the butcher of Tibet. I see him as a rat. Even his whole body in my eyes is fully red like. By the time he goes to college in Bangalore, India, Lakpa's become very active in the movement for Tibetan independence. Then in 2006, Hu Jintao, by now China's president, decides to make an official visit to India. It's the first time in history that any Chinese president has visited India, so it's a huge deal. Lakpa spends months preparing a massive protest in Bangalore, where Hu Jintao is scheduled to make a stop. But two days before the event, he gets bad news. All of a sudden, their plan changed. And they said, like, Hu Jintao is not coming to Bangalore. He's going to Mumbai after Delhi. My whole plan was flopped. Lakpa's disappointed and desperate to make an impact. So he jumps on a bus to Mumbai, where the president is scheduled to give a press conference the next morning. But there's no time for him to organize any kind of formal protest in Mumbai. I decided now I have to do something which may hurt me, but not hurt others. And that will give huge awareness to the international media. So you set yourself on fire? Yes. Did you sleep much that night? Were you afraid? That time I don't have any feeling. No feeling of afraid, no feeling of anything. I have only one feeling that I want to make a big awareness of Tibetan issue in front of the world. Lakpa explains that he had calculated the odds. Truth is that 70% I feel that I will not die. I may get a lot of injuries, half of my body may uh, become useless, but 70% I will not die, 30% I may die. 30% I'm not sure. The next morning, Lakpa buys a lighter and a liter of kerosene, and he arrives at the Taj Hotel, where Hu Jintao's press conference is about to start. Around the corner, he douses his legs in kerosene. I decided to put the kerosene in the lower part, because if I put the kerosene in the upper part, then I cannot shout with the fire on the face. Lakpa lights the fire and charges across the hotel plaza in flames, shouting to the many spectators who've come to get a glimpse of the Chinese president. Tell me what you were shouting. There are so many words that are coming in my mind, but so much like anger and so much depression inside my heart. So I can say only Hu Jintao is the killer. He killed our people. Hu Jintao is the killer. He killed our people. We need freedom. Why were you depressed? I feel like... Powerless, totally powerless. So this is my depression, being a refugee. Lakpa makes news around the world. And here's the crazy thing. Hu Jintao cancels the five other stops on his Indian tour and goes straight back to China. In every newspaper, in every news channel, all clips are coming out is our protest. He's press conference clips are not coming at all. So this is our achievement. Lakpa spends four months in the hospital, and when he gets out, the Dalai Lama invites him for a private audience. What were his comments to you? He cracked jokes. Why you hate China? Because you are not threatened by China. You were threatened by your stepfather, so you have to hate your stepfather. And even he asked, is he a Chinese? No. Then why you are angry with Chinese? <laughs> he just cracking jokes and all these things. What did you answer him? I, I didn't answer anything. <laughs> I just keep laughing. But do you think there's truth in what he's saying? Do you think part of your act was not against China, but had to do with your own history or your own demons? I did, because I hate him. That's why I did. <laughs> hate who? I hate him because he killed a lot of our Tibetans. So I want to make him ashamed in front of the world. But do you think there's a chance that you took out some of the anger you have towards your stepfather on the Chinese president? No, no, no. 
when I reached here, I forgot everything about my stepfather because I was now alive. I was saved and he's looking after our whole family with my two sisters. He's doing his own job. And because of him, I came here and I become a real Tibetan. I was born in a Tibetan, but I don't know anything about Tibet when I was in Tibet. Lakna's logic is that if it wasn't for his stepfather, he most likely would have stayed in Tibet, where Tibetan culture is rapidly disappearing under Chinese rule. So ironically, he wouldn't have been a real Tibetan if he'd stayed there. And for this reason, he says, he's grateful to the stepfather who sent him running. If he didn't become my stepfather, maybe i become totally a Chinese kind of people. Because of him, I have got a good place and i really become a Tibetan. Few years, Lapka has given up much of his direct political activism to go into theater, which he believes can often have a greater social impact. And it's easier on the legs than setting yourself on fire. Lapka still suffers from burn wounds, but he had surgery last year and it improved his condition. He has never spoken to his mother since leaving Tibet. That piece was originally created by Leia Tao for her amazing podcast, Strangers. Produced with support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project, and I am a huge fan. Additional production support provided by Snap Judgment's Nick Vanderkolk and Anna Sussman. Now then, we're going to take a short break, but when we return, we're going inside a walrus going to destroy our most cherished possession and we're going to say something really really dumb when snap judgment the outsiders episode continues stay tuned the load ain't getting no lighter even though i'm in it to win and i'm still an outsider you're getting outside yourself boy you're getting outside yourself is that right is that right you're getting outside yourself boy you're getting outside yourself Judgment, the Outsiders episode. You know, as people, we live, we work, we play, we love in communities. We're a social species. In fact, in a lot of ways, I can only know myself in relation to a community. But it's a human thing to step outside of a community to try to feel what someone else feels. Someone from the next village, someone older, someone younger. Someone from the other side of the world. Snap Judgment's Anna Sussman went on her own outsider's journey. I was walking down a narrow alley in Sri Lanka's capital. Almost every corner was guarded by a heavily armed man. There was a civil war going on. 
and I was there to report on the disappearances. Thousands of young men from the ethnic Tamil group, civilians, were being snatched from homes and cars and sidewalks and disappeared. It's a story that I hadn't seen covered much by the places I reported for, and it was a terrifying situation. People's fathers and sons, daughters sometimes, kidnapped and forced into camps or prisons, or kidnapped and killed. I made eye contact with the soldiers at each turn. I hoped they weren't tracking me down the alleys. I ducked into a signless, windowless office, up a flight of concrete stairs, where I met with a group of wives and mothers of the disappeared. They sat, lined up on metal chairs to tell their stories, holding folders of paperwork and fading pictures. One woman with graying hair. She said her son had gone missing in an unmarked white van. Her eyes were blank. She said, The hardest part wasn't not knowing if he was alive. It was not knowing if he was suffering. She made a point to thank me in advance for broadcasting her son's story to the world. The government was making it very difficult to tell this story of the disappearances. They tried to silence local journalists who reported it. Like a few days before I arrived, a major opposition newspaper was burned down. Journalists who covered the missing and pointed to the government were threatened. Any story or journalist or activist who posed a threat could disappear. As the Sri Lankan government tightens its grip, the media are being subjected to censorship, intimidation. A leading editor of an opposition newspaper has been murdered, and international news channels... So, because the local journalists couldn't really report the story, it seemed like exactly what a foreign correspondent, what I, should do. Once my tapes were out of the country, they would be out of reach for the government. I was staying with a Sri Lankan journalist friend and his wife. One night, we were eating a bunch of different curries we picked up down the street and joking around. Bugs flew in the open windows and swam around the fluorescent ceiling light. We were watching TV. There was a movie on about a baby. And my friend's wife said that they wanted to start a family soon. And I watched as my friend just shook his head. How can we, he said, like they had talked about this before. It's too dangerous for us. Then his mobile phone chirped. He picked it up and walked out to the porch, covering his mouth, talking quietly and urgently. He got calls like this almost every night. He came back in, upset, his fingers rubbing his temple. Another journalist, a friend, had been threatened. We stopped eating, and his wife cleared the plates without looking up. It was so dangerous that my friend had scaled back his work. He wasn't covering the disappearances, and we didn't talk a lot about my reporting. While I was working, I stayed away from him and his wife, so we would in no way give off the impression to the authorities that he was helping me. In the mornings, I'd take the bus to the city. At the bus station, police checked for bombs underneath the buses. I remember I'd hope it was raining, hard, so it would be more difficult to watch me weaving in the rain through the streets to interview human rights groups and senators. I tried to walk casually, stopping to check out DVDs or buy a coffee, but I was hyper-aware. My jaw tightly clamped down. On my last night, when I got back to my friend's house, he and his wife were nervous, more nervous than usual. I wrote fake names on the labels of the tapes, and I lined them up on the bed. I looked at them and they felt so valuable, like they held someone else's chance at life. Whenever I have important tape, I worry about the physical recordings. I check over and over again to make sure the tapes are still there, like checking for a wallet or a plane ticket. I wrote my editors while we cooked dinner. I remember typing, this is a really important story. I never did that, since the stories usually speak for themselves. But I really wanted this story to air. In the dark before dawn the next day, we hoisted my suitcase into the car 
and my friend motioned for me to come and talk to him in the driveway. He was unsettled, wiping his mouth with his hand. I have to ask you not to run that story, he said. He was looking down. He couldn't look me in the eye. It's too dangerous for us. They know you stayed with us. I'm so sorry. I thought for a second about arguing with him, but I knew better. When one reporter asks another to bury an important story, it's not for no reason. Sure, I said. Right, sure. Okay. We didn't talk on the way to the airport. I thought about the women in the tapes. I thought they might find it unfair. What about their stories, their families? What about the safety for their sons who were gone, vanished? We rolled slowly through armed checkpoints, barbed wire fences on wheels, pushed out of the road by young men in uniform. A few hours later, I was wheels up, looking down on the Indian Ocean. My foot resting on the backpack that held the tapes that could never be played. When I got home, I deleted them. I wiped them clean. And the story disappeared. That story, it was produced by Anna Sussman. Everyone loves a mystery, a whodunit, and that's exactly what our next piece entails. But fair warning, there's a little bit of guts and gore coming up. Don't worry, no one was injured in the recording of the story. Alaska, 1990. Hundreds of dead walruses are washing ashore on the Alaska coastline. The local Inuit and Yupik tribes say that weeks ago, they spotted Russian fighter jets shooting the walruses for target practice. When the carcasses washed on shore, the tribes harvested the tusks because, well, might as well not let them go to waste, right? But walruses are a protected species, so the U.S. government wants to know whether this story is true. And they know only one guy who can figure this out. Ken Goddard. Ken's a lab director of the only wildlife forensics lab in the United States. He solved thousands of cases, finding out what or who kills protected species. And it's his job to prove that Russians have shot these walruses. Having spent 12 years in police work, I was used to some pretty strange, horrific things. So I was perfectly willing to believe that Russian pilots were firing cannon shells at walruses floating around in the Arctic Sea. Why not? So Ken and his colleagues Ed and Dick flew up to Anchorage, Alaska to perform autopsies on the dead walruses. We were pretty horrified when we landed on the next to the first one. We took one look at this 2,000-pound decomposed critter, and we moved both planes upwind. When that whole decomposition of fish and fat start breaking down, uh, the odor goes right to your brain. I'd been to some pretty bad uh, human crime scenes. I'd done more than my share of staggering out and uh, puking outside the uh, house. But um, decomposed walruses are just really a, a notch above. So the team got to work. Ken took notes and pictures of the crime scenes. Ed peeled back the skin and ran metal detectors over the body to search for cannon fragments. And Dr. Dick Stroud? Yeah, Dick Stroud was the one who did most of the cutting. And um, to us, that was the worst job because that's the, you know, when you've got a walrus like this that's baking in the sun, it's basically um, expanding under pressure. It's the skin of the walrus that's holding everything in. And it's when you cut through that stretched skin with that flensing knife for the first time that everything kind of, well, for lack of a better term, gushes out. 
you really got to watch out you don't get a face full of decomposed walrus. A face full of walrus didn't even begin to phase Dick. He'd actually had grosser things on his resume. He had spent his early career on the Pribilof Islands in the hold of a big ship that was surging back and forth in open seas with 55-gallon drums full of decomposed seals. And he'd set up this little necropsy station in the hold of the ship, and he spent his days staggering back and forth, slicing these things up. I can't imagine an environment more likely to induce a projectile vomiting. So old rotting walruses? Not even a thing. More upsetting to him was the fact that his pants kept splitting open. We really should have measured Dick Stroud's rear end better because he kept, as he's down on his hands and knees, he kept splitting out the back end of his protective clothing, his butt sticking out, his exposed butt. Ken snapped a picture of Dick's butt to go along with all the other evidence. They comb through the first walrus and they don't see anything to prove a cause of death. So they pack up to go to the next and... Start walking the planes and the pilot stopped us and said, uh-uh, you're not getting anywhere near this plane till you burn all that outer clothing. Uh, we smelled so bad. Now imagine you're near this beach and you see, with absolutely no context, these guys playing around in walrus guts and stripping off their clothes and burning them. That's what the locals see. They're watching us from offshore in their boats with scoped rifles and binoculars. And they probably think we're crazy people. So the locals keep following Ken around, staring at him as his team proceeds for days down the coast, slicing and using their metal detectors and splitting their pants open. And these experienced scientists are starting to feel pretty dumb. We hadn't found cannon shell one or bullet one. We're not finding anything. And it's getting frustrated because you know, we're, we're crime scene investigators. We're supposed to be solving the puzzle. And we're not. As if they don't feel stupid enough, along the way, they can't seem to even get from one place to another without screwing up. First, they crash a plane by ripping out its landing gear on a rock. And the only thing the government has to replace it is an old postal truck. And we started driving north. And here we are in an Arctic stream. And Al does the proper thing, which is to try to ford it. It was only a couple feet deep. You know, we thought we could get across. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, the truck gets stuck, hopelessly stuck. So Ken just gets out and takes a photograph. And I would label that picture the abandonment of government property, because that's exactly what we're doing. This is your tax dollars at work. So the team just grabs their essentials in their backpacks and heads north. And they see another carcass. That would have been a really cool walrus had it not have a, a tail that looked like a whale, which is precisely what it was. Uh, we've got several problems, one of which is we don't even know if our metal detectors work anymore because we keep looking for bullets and we're not finding anything. So we t decide to take the proper forensic approach. I back off about 15 feet. I take out my 357 revolver and I fire a couple bullets at the whale. Actually, I fire one bullet at the whale and one in the ground. And we dug for the bullet with the metal detector in the ground and we found it. We uh, went looking for the bullet in the whale with the metal detector, and we never found it. What this basically means is that there's something in the blubber that's been foiling their metal detectors. And through the last 20 corpses, they've just been wasting their time. To add insult to injury, there are the ever-present locals. We're still offshore watching us. Except now we've gone from cutting up walruses and waiting around walrus guts to shooting bullets and whales waiting around in decomposed whale guts. Probably didn't make a whole lot of sense. But then, Dr. Dick Stroud gets an idea. He decides to thinly fillet the whole next walrus they see, so they don't have to rely on metal detectors. So when they get to the next corpse, a 2,500-pound monster, he starts deli-slicing it. About an hour and a half later, the knife blade goes click. He hit something metallic. We all carefully move in, peel it away. It's a bullet. We were, uh, we were screaming, we did it, we found it, a bullet, a bullet, a bullet. A bullet from a rifle, not a Russian cannon fragment. And along with that, they also find forensic evidence that the walrus heads were chopped off before they'd been thrown into the water, not after. Which meant the MIG story was nonsense, 
and that the uh, natives were in fact lying. The amazing thing is that this walrus, and predominantly, and so, several others, helped us solve the mystery. The natives had snuck up on the walruses on the ice floes, had shot them with their hunting rifles and National Guard rifles, uh, killing as many as they possibly could. Once they had the dead ones on the ice, they chopped the heads off, cut the tusks, and then pushed the carcasses overboard and went off with the ivory. The native tribes were actually allowed to kill walruses and take ivory, but only if they did not waste any part of the animal. Leaving hundreds of corpses to rot was definitely a waste. So the case is solved, but now comes the hard part. We've got one more job. We're to testify before the Walrus Commission. Yeah, the Walrus Commission. Made up of chieftains of the local tribes. And this is the part Ken's really not looking forward to, because he was nervous about being this clueless white outsider and coming and telling these tribes that they were not entitled to the walruses they were killing. And plus, there were these rowdy kids causing havoc and howling at them as they pulled up to the Walrus Commission. Here's all these kids running around on ATVs and motorcycles and just acting like crazy uh, characters. But um, (laughs) we really didn't want to get them mad. But Ken came up with a plan. In order to keep the mood light, he'd make a slideshow of all the embarrassing pictures he'd taken over the past few days. Basically make fun of ourselves and get them laughing. And once we got them laughing, then I'd stop and Ed would stand up and put forth the science and they would understand. (laughs) And I'm showing some of the different things that um, we did that were, you know, in retrospect, kind of foolish or dumb. The crash plane, the crash truck, and... Nobody laughs, dead silence. I worked my way through about two-thirds of the story Finally, get, getting to the, the picture uh, where Dick Stroud's rear end, you know, his butt sticking out, and one of the old men started chuckling. And as soon as he did, everybody else started laughing. I immediately stopped my presentation. Ed got up, made his presentation. They all listened quietly. The main guy got up and he said, we knew this all along. We just wanted to know if you white guys knew. He said, you know, I, I really hate for you white men to see this. He said, what you're seeing is the de- destruction of our culture. You know, these ATVs, these motorcycles, the kids aren't learning. Our way of life is coming to an end. They said, we'll take care of it. And for at least a few years, they did. Although, as I understand it now, uh, headless walls are starting to wash ashore along the Alaska coastline again. Big thanks to Ken Goddard. If you want to see for yourself, in all its nasty detail, Ken's full presentation will be on our site, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. And when Snap Judgment continues, one woman faces off against the strong, silent type. Guess who wins? When Snap Judgment... Outsiders episode continues. Stay tuned.
Snap from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and today we're going places where we are not supposed to be. Snap Judgment Stephanie Fu, always somewhere where she's not supposed to be, brings us a story. Linda came from Boston, from a well-to-do Jewish family of lawyers and doctors who told her she needed to do good in the world. She wasn't exactly sure what that meant, but she went to an Ivy League, got a PhD in anthropology, and right out of grad school, she left to do something good. She went to Louisiana to help the Kwasadi, a small, impoverished Native American tribe. Right after she first got there, she gave a presentation to a bunch of suits at a fundraiser for the tribe, a member of the Kwasadi tribe, Bertney Langley, watched in the audience. So I expounded and thought that I did great. And it was, you know, I even had a PowerPoint. After the talk, I asked him if he wanted to share anything from the tribal perspective. And he got up and he said, I'll tell y'all why she really came to the South, if you want to know. She heard there were good-looking men here. So, of course, the whole crowd started laughing and they went up to talk to him. So we went outside, and I said, why did you do that to me? That, you know, that just totally undercut. Or, And he said, well, basically, I thought you were sounding a little too much like the great white hope. We invited you for a project that we thought you could help with. You know, you're not coming to save us. We've heard that before. And ask us a little more of what our you know, our thoughts are uh, before you come and expound widely, you know, on, on like, you're not the voice of my, my people. Uh, and it was a, a shock to me. Brittany had been apprehensive about letting her help his tribe in the first place, because though she was an excellent grant writer, she did seem really naive. When she told me that she was an anthropologist, it kind of crossed my mind. These are the people that digs up the bones of my ancestors and study them. And I really didn't want to meet with her. <laughs> I just thought she didn't really understand what this was about. And I had told her, we don't have time to teach. We have to show it by how we do things around here. And so Bertney did the last thing Linda expected. He extended an invitation. I said, if you really want to learn, come stay with my mother. You have to really live over here to, to really understand what I'm talking about when I do tell you stories of my people. Were you surprised when she actually did come? Kind of. I said, it must have been really bad where he came from if you like living out here with us. <laughs> Linda moved to Elton, Louisiana, population 1,000. But she was excited. She realizes how sheltered she was now. But back then, she thought it was going to be kind of like the horse whisperer. Like she'd learn how to talk to animals and get close to nature through Native American legends. Of course, that's not how it was. It was a lot harder. Brittany wasn't just an exceptionally brusque kind of guy. Everyone in the tribe was just as straightforward as he was. His brother actually said to me once, it really hurts you to be humble, doesn't it? Wow, you struggle with that. And how did it feel that? Hear that? <laughs> that was worse than being told I had been the great white hope. I'd probably say 50 words for his everyone. And we're riding along in the car, and his mom said, turns to me and she said, Why do white people talk so much? Of course, that shut me up, right? <laughs> how do you answer that? And she's thinking about it, genuinely thinking about it. You know, finally she said, I think they like the sounds of their own voice in their own ear. So, of course, I couldn't say anything to that. I think when I met his mom, I was just so struck by she seemed the most genuine, the most... Um, when I met his mom, it I realized this is... They know who they are. They're totally fine. And it was like... That's where I began to really feel like my education started. It was like I was back in first grade. Can you tell me about when you first realized that she was, like, getting it? It seemed like once we got into a rhythm of working together, everything fell into place. Once she learned how we operated and whatever, she was able to, to fit in and to help. With the tribal program, she was good at what she did, so 
she was able to teach some of our people how to handle programs and encourage some of the youngsters to go to college. Linda got the tribe a lot more money for education, for finding jobs, for teaching young people how to speak the Kwasadi language, which had been on the brink of extinction. And just as everything was coming together, Linda's family called her up and was like, okay, that's nice. When are you coming back? My aunts, you know, typical Yenta style, had arranged a guy for me. He was all dinners and flowers and walks and looking at the sunset and romantic cards. And and the guy was starting to say, when are you coming back to the Northeast? And he started coming down here like, hey, where, where, <laughs> when is this year getting close to 30? After five years living with the Kwasadi, she had to make a choice about moving back to the East Coast and starting the rest of her life. So Brittany made a suggestion. And he first said, well, maybe we could do this, this be a permanent partnership. And the first time I thought about it, I thought, I don't that's really unusual. What do you mean permanent partnership? <laughs> I don't know how he phrased it, but he was talking about getting, getting married. He said, instead of going back to the Northeast, stay, we'll get married, and we'll keep doing this. You know, he said, talk to my mom and see what she thinks. And she said that it makes sense. I don't know. We just were together all the time anyway. You know, we didn't have time to date anywhere, anyone else. <laughs> was there no um, romance before the uh, we'll get married part? Was there any romance? Not that I remember. We always worked, it seemed like. Yeah. I had been raised not to date outside. I'm full-blooded Jewish, and he's full-blooded Indian, and Jews only date Jews, and Indians only date Indians, so it never made sense to date. Can you tell me at what point uh, she began to uh, seem more than just a co-worker? I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) There must have been a first time that you guys, you know... Don't feel bad. There have been so many people that have tried to get him to answer this <laughs> in various ways. He told somebody it was an arranged marriage. Straight face. And after the guy left, I said, why did you say that? He said, how else do you explain it? Well, okay, how would you explain it? <laughs> I can't remember either. It just really seemed like the right thing to do. It was an arranged marriage by the creator. That's what I said. <laughs> If something is right and something you can do good in the world, go ahead and do it. Don't waste time because you don't know what tomorrow is going to have. And Go ahead. So from the first time that we brought it up to actually getting married was probably under a month, would you say? Probably. But her marriage with Brittany was very different than the relationship she had with her romantic suitor back in the Northeast. For one thing, Bertney would never read her a sonnet. He didn't even say, I love you. Part of it was coming to learn their language. What, what actually would you say if you were going to be romantic? There's no words. People ask us all the time, translate the phrase, I love you. And we can't translate it. It's um, all the things you read on Valentine's cards and stuff. There's, what would you say? I don't know. I asked his mom once, well, if there's no way to say I love you, how do your children know? Because you have to tell them every night, right? And she just looked at me and she was like, in the white world, your, your children can't tell that you love them unless you tell them? <laughs> Our children know that they're loved and they're safe and they're secure. And, and it's that, such a difference of, of actions versus words. The way he was raised is show it. And he kept on showing it, making time for things she wanted to do, respecting her feelings, running errands, taking care of the kids, getting tickets to things she wanted to see. He did this through 20 years of marriage and two children. And I am so glad that I've lived my life this way. I sleep well every night. The kids are happy. You know, we've got a rich, full life together. I have never regretted any choice I've made. Do you tell each other that you love each other now? What for? Bert.
Brittany and Linda Langley still live in Elton, Louisiana, where they still do not speak to each other. Happily. It's about that time. Did you like that? Did you dig that? Well, do not worry. If you need your snap fix, I am the Pusher Man. Full episodes, pictures, movies, stuff. Available right now at snapjudgment.org. Keep the story alive. Join Snap Nation at Facebook. Our Twitter handle, snapjudgment.org. Snap was produced by myself and a merry band of outsiders indeed. Show them some love. The Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Don't want none, don't get none. Pat Masidi Miller. An assessment used to be part of the in crowd. Stephanie Fu makes fun of hippies. Julie DeWitt, she's not really a joiner. Rinzo Gorio sits above it all. And I'm not saying that Nick Vanderkoek doesn't have any friends. I'm saying that he doesn't need any friends. Will Urbina knows that the only true friend is cold, hard cash. Isn't that right, Will? Is your computer running more slowly than you would like? Would you enjoy trying some of those fancy apps the kids are always going on about? Well, today is your lucky day. Just call the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and tell them Glenn sent you. Much love to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, makes youngsters listen to nothing but public media so the rest of the kids will make fun of them in school and scar them forever. PRX.org. No, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could create an outsider art series, only have showings of your work at three in the morning, insist that people wearing skinny jeans are beaten at the door. You could present each and every attendee with a live rat trapped from somewhere on your property, and when you are regarded as the second coming of Basquiat, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is N-D-R.